Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. And welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's Cindy. Hi. So nice to have you here. Before we get into our conversation with Trey Burt, a couple of things to take care of. If you would like to support Basic Folk, there are a couple ways to do it. You can make a contribution online at basicfolk.com donate and gain access to special bonus content backstage. You can purchase a Basic Folk beanie seasonally. As long as we uh, have beanies in stock, you can head to our website to check that out at basicfolk.com. You can also follow us on social media at basicfolkpod, and you can sign up for our newsletter at our website as well. Okay, let's get into it. Trey Burt. When Trey Burt was signed to John Prine's Oh Boy Records in 2019, he was only one of two artists, including label mate Kelsey Walden, to join the label in the past 15 years. The Sacramento-born singer-songwriter had released his debut album independently, catching the attention of Prine's son Jody Whelan, who sent Trey a message on social media. Sadly, the message, which landed in one of those secret inboxes no one knows about, remained unread for a long time. When Trey finally found it and responded, it began a relationship with the label and allowed him into John Prine's orbit. He only met the man once after John came backstage at one of his shows, but the kindness and opportunity Prine imparted on Trey cannot be understated by the young musician. We talk about John's impact and how he helped shape and reinforce Trey's writing. His style is very clear and straightforward, like you can hear every word with his Dust Bowl vocals that gently command attention. He grew up with a very cool older brother who influenced him heavily, as most big brothers do, As a young kid, his taste in music was eclectic and cool, but it all came to a halt when he discovered Woody Guthrie thanks to a school project. Formerly a fast-picking guitarist, much like the busy and flowing style of the tallest man on earth, his playing slowed down when his writing got more intense, as that helps him in getting people's attention. We also discussed the range in his comfortability when it comes to speaking about the Black experience in folk music. This stemmed from his appearance on Adia Victoria's excellent podcast, Call and Response, which is a must-listen because it's an important moment where two Black people who create music in a white space talk about what that entails in finite detail. You can find that episode posted at basicfolk.com or wherever you get podcasts for call and response. Trey is easy to talk to, and we cover a lot from his grandfather's impact to an operator at T-Mobile recognizing his name from his music. Okay, 
Enjoy Trey. We're going to take a listen to a song from his latest album. This is Sweet Misery. And then we'll get to our conversation with Trey Burt on Basic Folk. darkness covering up the light but you see it has to admit that it's just passing by my friend in new york city she calls me time and time and i tell her made up stories but never tell her lies and the weight of my heart it swings me left to right like a wrecking ball Six foot chain forever on my life. It only goes to show sweet misery. You can follow me down to the end of my path, but you still gotta get through me. Trey, thank you so much for talking to me today. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Looks like you're in a John Prine place. That's that's exa- it couldn't be more true. Yeah, this is this is his office over at uh, Old Boy Records. Cool. Well, let's get started here. So you're from Sacramento, California area, is that right? Or is it's yeah. like outside of Sacramento? I was born in uh, the Bay Area in Hayward, but I grew up okay. in between kind of both of them. Yeah, Sacramento and San. How does where you are from help you with like where you're going and how does how does it ground you and help move you forward um well it, it gives you an anchor i guess to to a place to write from not only write from but to you know like a kind of identity in the world greta gerwig describes sacramento as the uh midwest of california and i think that's pretty accurate is that where she's from too? Yeah, and you know it's different than other places in in ways. So um, I'm proud of proud to be from Sacramento and the Bay Area. It's, yeah, it's helped me uh, feel comfortable um, with my identity and in some you know good and not so good ways. It's it's a tough tough teacher, but you know that's that's everyone. I feel like I'm. Might not have this right, but it sounds like you grew up with your mom and your brother, and your grandfather was like kind of like your father figure. Mm-hmm. Um, what did that dynamic look like? My my grandparents live directly across the street from my mom, so here's my mom, and my grandparents were directly across the street. I would do this thing probably every week where I'd run away and go stay at my grandparents' house, take all my my little Disney movies and the uh, action figures, put them in a pillow sack and just go across the street to my grandparents' house. I spent a lot of time there. Actually, most of my childhood memories are from that house instead of um, the other mm. house. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very uh, privileged to, to live with people from an older generation. Um, which is, I feel like, where, where I got my love for, you know, older things from. 
Hmm. Your family has um, a pretty strong musical history. Your great uncle was a blues performer, and your great great grandfather was a pianist in the Harlem Jazz Renaissance. And there's this story of your grandfather meeting his dad only one time, um, and he left when your granddad was little. And uh, your grandfather stuck around and was there for you as a father figure. What do you know about like how his experience with his own dad, how did that impact the way he felt about his grandchildren playing music and with you pursuing music as a songwriter? Oh, this is a good question. My grandpa, first and foremost, he's a military man, you know, and also pretty religious. So back in the day, he really kind of frowned upon the musician lifestyle. He comes from that old uh, saying that blues music is devil's music. Um, he he thought that the only things that come from it are, you know, drugs, sex, and uh, crime, things like that. But I think as uh, as me and my brother, my older brother, Joey, started getting more serious about it, he he just loved that we were interested uh, in, in something so deeply. So um, for him, though... Uh, not having a a father figure around he he just turned to uh the military and and relig- mm-hmm. religious faith and he's like the goofiest most solid uh kind of person i've ever met yeah i you can't even tell that um you know a father wasn't really present in his life cuz he's just he fills that void himself he sounds awesome yeah, he's dope. How many brothers do you have? I have a lot. Um, I have a, a couple I haven't even met yet. And one I met when I was 10 years old. Brian, he's living in my house in Sacramento. I gave him my apartment because I'm here in Nashville now. Um, and Joey and Avery, I have like six or seven brothers, I think. All brothers. Any sisters? Just one. You grew up with Joey. Yeah, I grew up with Joey until I was around 10 years old, and then he he um, was living with my dad. Who was the brother that taught you everything you knew about guitar? Joey. Joey. Mm-hmm. You've talked about accidentally breaking his guitar one day and feeling so ashamed, but like, from what I understand about that story, his response seemed very kind. Um, he showed you how to play the guitar some. What was your relationship like with your brother, and how did that inform like the type of musician you would become? He, anything he did, did was like the coolest thing in the world to me. The type of music he liked, I would latch on to. And the things he did, I would, I would try to emulate. I remember, I think the most like formative moment with that was... Uh, I was walking home from school, and our neighbor was driving down the street playing, uh, I think it was like Southern Man, Neil Young song, 
my brother just turns and looks at me. He's like, that, that dude's the coolest guy in the world. He's playing Neil Young. And I had no idea who that was at that point. But I, I saw the amazement that my brother, you know, my brother's voice and eyes. I'm like, if he thinks that's cool, I want, I want to be like that. That's cool. You're like a little sponge. Yeah. Your brother taught you to play guitar with your thumb, which you have stuck with and developed like a really wonderful picking style. What do you like about that style of playing in that it complements your songwriting? It's it's like a really good way of uh, accenting the words you're saying. You can say words around that little thump thump with the thumb, um, and kind of make it hit That's cool. hit a little harder. It's like a you know the folk blues equivalent of like an eight oh eight track in a hip hop song. I feel like I watched a video of you. I think it was it was either like twenty eleven or two thousand nine, but you were maybe around like eighteen, twenty years old, mm-hmm. right around. If I'm like doing my math correctly, like it was mesmerizing. But it was like I was watching a completely different artist. Like your guitar playing was way more busy. At least on that one song, I went and watched a couple other videos from two thousand nine. But it definitely <laughs> is like different and. Like, you're doing way more things um, with your playing. Mm-hmm. Your voice was higher. Yeah. Um, but I'm mostly, like, I mean, voices change as people get older. But when did your guitar playing change to be the way it is now? Like, it, it seems like it's more chill. Yeah. That's crazy that you, you saw, saw those videos. Uh, I noticed that, too. I, I was doing a lot more on the guitar back then. I think I, I was just trying to get people's attention by writing busy guitar work like that. At the time, at that time, tallest man on earth was like, you know, the coolest thing in the world in that sort of music. So part of it, you know, I was emulating people like him on the guitar. And I think it slowed. Mm, that's, yeah, similar. Yeah. I think it slowed down when I got more into the songwriting part of it, or I learned how to kind of calibrate the two. Instead of being so mm-hmm. guitar heavy and, you know, just, uh, I just quieted it down more so I can say more things, I guess. Hmm. When you started um, writing music, you had an eclectic taste, um, which sounds like you had a great taste uh, in music. Pixies. Jack Johnson, Sufjan Stevens, Tracy Chapman. You got into punk, R&B, neo-soul. Then you found Woody Guthrie for a school project, and it kind of like hit you in a different way. Like you found it very hypnotic. Mm-hmm. And Woody Guthrie's delivery is similar to yours in that you can understand every single word that you are saying in your songs. Um, what about that type of delivery is compelling to you enough to like hone and perfect it as your style? Yo, yeah, just that, that, uh, that your mind doesn't, when you're listening to it, you don't really have to do any active work trying to understand what's happening. Uh, with, with, with an artist like Woody Guthrie, you do no thinking. He, he puts the words in your head and fills your head with, uh, whatever story he's telling and yeah that was so mesmerizing to me it's like I was under a spell Mm. my favorite types of things are just pretty visceral sort of um, straightforward no bullshit yeah yeah exactly (laughs) 
<laughs> Do you feel like you're a very straightforward, no bullshit type of person? Well, it depends. Uh, yeah, yes and no. Um, you know, if I'm around a bunch of strangers, I'm not gonna uh, completely open myself up until I'm sure I could trust who I'm around, you know, but mm. with my friends, um, yeah, definitely. So you were raised really religious and we don't have to get into like exactly what that looked like, but you did give an example once where you celebrated the first birthday that you celebrated was when you were 15 years old because your family didn't celebrate birthdays because of religious beliefs. Um, but you never seemed to get into it. However, like everyone in your family believed and was part of that and there was this kind of like separation that you felt how did you reconcile that distance between you and your family um i don't know if i had to do any reconciling reconciliation i was talking to my friend about this the other day actually and she she she's like yeah i don't know some people i feel like are just born outside of those things i think i was one of those people i didn't uh I didn't, it wasn't like lamenting the fact that I wasn't close to my family in that way. It, it just seemed like that's what they did and I'm going to do something different. And that, mm. That's cool. Not to, um, I'm not, not to belittle that, like this comparison, but I feel very similar about that with my family when it comes to like sports. Yeah. You know, they all like love football and they love the Red Sox and I'm just like I'm gonna be in the other room watching a Tom Hanks <laughs> thanks guys <laughs> yeah yeah I like playing sports and watching them in person but for the life of me I don't really care to follow listen similar like both religion and sports sounds like a similar tract humor so you are very funny but you're also like a very serious and thoughtful person. Um, and I read, was reading like your responses in an interview you did back in 2011. That's where I actually saw that old video on Vimeo. Um, <laughs> you were <laughs> you were using humor in a way that you probably wouldn't now in an interview, like making jokes about being named after a character from Boys in the Hood, etc. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I remember what you talked. Yeah. Wow. This is pretty good. Was a little tiny baby Trey doing a pretty good little interview. <laughs> um, but what has been your evolution of using humor to express yourself, and how has it lived alongside this other like serious part of yourself? Mm, um, dang, that's a heavy question. I feel like I, I the first lens that I put over life is like a humorous sort of disposition, kind of with everything. Um, well, yeah, I mean, in the same way that, like, Shakespearean tragedy is both, like, humorous, but also has this really heavy weight to it. That's, that's kind of, like, how I feel most comfortable, uh, being in the world, I guess. But I think it kind of changed with my experiences when I was younger, um... I didn't, you know, well, there's a lot, I don't know how to answer this because there's so many different ways to to put it. I don't know, as I got older, I just started uh, kind of taking things a little bit more personally, I think. So 
humor, my within music, the relationship between humor and the serious subject kind of matured as I did, I think. Hmm. The dynamic yeah. kind of changed. I did use humor and still do to kind of like, yeah, uh, dance around things. Um, but now I'm just like, give it to me. I'll take it. <laughs> uh, speaking of that, I listened to Adia Victoria's amazing interview um, with you on her podcast, Call and Response, mm. which I shared on Instagram story today, and then you reshared it. So you already know that I listened to it, and I'm obsessed with it. And I feel like people should go listen to that episode right after this one because it's an important moment where two black people who create music in a white space are talking about like what that entails in in like finite detail. And I feel like there is so much to learn about, Trey, about your experience, and we're lucky that you're documenting it in your writing. Um, So... For you right now, because it can always change, Mm -hmm. where is the line in like discussing the black experience in your songs and discussing the black experience within your genre, like in interviews like this? Mm -hmm. And if it is like fluid, like what are the determinants? Mm. If I feel like it, I think that's the the, (laughs) the biggest one. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I, I, I... don't want to be any one sort of for, sort of thing, you know. I don't want to be in my genre like the uh, the you know I don't know the harbinger of 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 black identity politics. The same way I wouldn't want to be any other thing, you know. Um, so I, I'm pretty cautious as to not like let people steer me into talking about that when I don't feel like it. If I want to, then um, then I will. And you're right, it is a fluid line. Um, um, yeah, it changes. I mean, I'd like the freedom to be able to sing about whatever I want, you know, not, not just something politically charged. Or, but when I do, I, I, it's because I genuinely want to. Hmm. In the conversation with Adia, you were talking about protest songs, and that's something that people ask you about a lot. Like, people are surprised, especially from a writer who's gotten so much attention and accolades for your song Under the Devil's Knee that you don't consider yourself a protest writer. And your answer to that is that you write your experience, you're honest, straightforward, like we talked about, no bullshit. You're easy to understand in your songs. Um, Protest songs are heavily tied to my view as a person, my experience in this country. And you've also said, I don't play games, hold people's hands, or leave room for interpretation, which is like, good don't um but what was your development in terms of being able to write like that a lot of bad songs that i felt like were just missing the point i think the first kind of like really blatantly protest song i wrote was uh uh undead god of war and that that went through a lot of different iterations before i got to what I was saying a lot of you know to be honest they weren't very good um but I'd say like uh I I just felt so much so intensely about what was happening I didn't know how to quite say it 
And so I wrote, I wrote that song, I don't know, probably like 50 times in, in the course of a couple of weeks mm. until... So that's good practice. Yeah, yeah. Well, nothing was saying exactly what I wanted to say until finally, you know, you get it. And you take a note when, when you feel like you're, you, sh- you know, mm. you're being genuine and saying exactly what you want to say. And you try to get back to that place. So when, when I wrote another protest song a couple of weeks after that, uh, which I think was Only Saw Remains, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to write, but I, I knew that I wanted to feel like that again. Mm, that's cool. You just you almost have to like be not so emotional about it. Like mm-hmm. do it, do it oh, go again and again and again and again until you're like, okay, I got I have control of my narrative yeah, or something like that. Cool. Um, I was also interested in that there are songs that you write, but you aren't ready to record because you need to like get good enough for the song. Like I heard you had written songs in the same period as your first Oh Boy release, Caught It From The Rye, that you didn't record until this most recent record. Yeah. So, so, like, what songs on this new album were like that? Uh, Ransom Blues and Carnival Mare. Those are songs that are both around during Cod from the Rye. But I didn't, I didn't have the style. Like, I, I could hear the song fully in my head, but I, I didn't quite have, like, the finesse to play them back then. Um, both in terms of, I guess, uh, like a, my motor ability or whatever. And just, I, I couldn't really hammer down the style. Um, I just had to get looser and more confident in my playing and singing to relax into that style. I guess it was there. It's just like I couldn't get out of my own way enough to play or sing that loosely. So for me, like when I'm thinking of like, oh, I need to get out of my own way it's like a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. What does that look like for you? Yeah, it's it's. I guess it's the fear of not being able to play the song, so it does cause anxiety. Uh, yeah, it's the fear that man, this song won't ever come out how I want it to, and you're kind of battling that until one side wins, and mm. either the song gets rid or it doesn't. Sounds like some anxiety, some perfectionism. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah, both of those things. I'm I'm a pretty anxious person, you know. Really, mm-hmm. I am also an anxious person, and ha- I'm an anxious person that has like a chill vibe. Yeah. So it's like people are like, <laughs> "What? Why are you? Are what's happening?" And I'm like, "Sorry, I can't speak." To you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same. It's a vibe. Uh, being an anxious, chill person. Yes, I like it mostly. Okay, this is a bit of a setup to talk about John Prine. Um, So here's the story. Your album, Caught It From The Rye, was released independently. Then after an Instagram message from John's son, Jody Jody Whelan. Yeah, he's in there. Which was, (laughs) Jody, what's up? Um, So it was in one of your hidden inboxes on Instagram, after that, you fostered a relationship with their label, Oh Boy, and it was released on the label, and you were, like, then in the John Prine orbit. And you had discovered John's music when you were at the end of high school, and your reaction to it, 
I heard you talk about it. It was pretty awesome. You were saying stuff like he learned how to react to life, and you learn about the stuff behind the curtain when thinking about John Prine's music. How did your writing change after you discovered John Prine? I felt like I could be myself a little bit more. There's no problem with kind of being a little goofier in your songwriting. Um, you know, I think at the time, actually, no, that's not true. I was kind of humorous and before that, but definitely he reinforced that and did it, did it the best. I mean, I'm still learning a lot from his songwriting every day. I was just, you know, mm -hmm. walking down the street in Gallatin just a couple of hours ago, listening to Far From Me, like five times in a row, just because, you know, how do you write a song like that? Um, that's both humorous and, and also just like one of the best country songs you've ever heard. So I'm still learning from, from the boss. You've said that you can't look straight at the fact that John let you into this world of Oh Boy Records, and you were able to meet John Prine once. He came to one of your shows, um, and you got to speak with him. Do you recall what you talked about, or at least how the interaction made you feel? It was, it was surreal. Yeah, I remember what we talked about. He could, I think you could kind of tell I was excited and, and nervous to meet him. He did uh, most of the talking. He, he told me, he's like, oh, you're from Sacramento, huh? I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, uh, reminds me of this one tour I did with Leo Koki, uh, and he was on stage tuning his guitar, and it sounded beautiful. He's a wonderful guitar player. It sounded like music when he was tuning his guitar. And when I tuned mine, it sounded like an ambulance. It sounded like cat style. <laughs> and uh, he said that because uh, I was lost in my tuning on stage, <laughs> so he was, was kind of getting on me about that. Yeah, that 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 was a surreal experience. I'll tell you what, mm. Mm. you're very good at impressions, by the way. <laughs> it was a very good John Prine impression. I'm good at it, only a few, and you know. Oh yeah. I'm working on that one still. Those, I mean. You had me. <laughs> I thought I was talking to John Prine for a moment. <laughs> okay, the new record is You, Yeah, You. So on you talked to Kim Rule from the Why We Write podcast, and you were saying that Dante's Inferno and Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man were kind of on your mind when writing a lot of these songs. Mm -hmm. um, and you wrote... A handful of them for nine days in a cabin in Yosemite, which you were describing as like cathartic. What did those nine days look like for you? And can you describe the feeling of having that space and time? Because it seems like that was like an unusual move for your writing process. Mm -hmm. Did I say nine? Uh, it was it was like four. Um, it's four days up there. I wrote nine songs. Or did you take did you take some naps in between? Because that can feel like two days. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, uh, I ate some mushrooms though. So that made it feel like forever. Okay, there you go. <laughs> um, what was it like? It, it was incredibly necessary because for one of the first times in a long time, I was feeling like I didn't really have any control over myself. So I knew that something was wrong and I needed to get out and go somewhere so I could freely kind of just turn into nothing and put myself back together again. First and foremost, it was kind of like a mental health 
the trip, you know. I wasn't, exp I brought my guitar and my little tape recorder, but I wasn't really expecting to write any songs. I just wanted to let off some steam. I'm, I'm really, you know, proud of myself that in the fact that like I was able to recognize that and go do that, you know, because there's been other times where I haven't made a decision like that, or I just simply didn't have the ability to, right. to, you know, go to a cabin for a couple of days. So I'm really grateful for that time. What was the cabin like? It was pretty creepy. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was charming um, in the way that, you know, it's old and next to a creek, but uh, a bunch of firefighters stay there during the fire seasons outside of Yosemite. And a couple of rooms upstairs, there's like 10, seven trindle beds all lined up next next to each other. Like the seven dwarves. Like the seven dwarves, except just a little creepier. <laughs> and they all had like ch oh children quilts on them and little dolls everywhere. No. Yeah. It had really good light. And I need good light when I'm writing a song. It just helps with the imagery. So mm. that was cool. It's pretty weird. I think about it. That sounds weird. It's like The Shining, you know? <laughs> kind of. The Shining in cabin form. Yeah. Funny. Um, cool. Well, I'm glad you survived. <laughs> um, so the you in the title, You, Yeah, You, is multifaceted. It is you, Trey, and mm -hmm. the listener. Um, you were wondering who that other person was when writing that record, like, it was a part of yourself that you didn't relate to, but you wanted to talk to that person. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Um, how did how did that talk go, and how do you relate to him now? I think the whole talking thing was that experience in the cabin. I didn't realize who I was talking to. I was, uh, you know, I was talking to a bunch of people. I was talking to myself. And I was talking to, kind of having this inner dialogue with the my country, um, mm. and with. John and his family, um, and My Muse, which is the, the last song on the record, is called Tell Mary, and Mary's kind of the name I give, I give my muse, um, so I was, I think the you is that, you know, that conversation that I was trying to have, um, with those things, and then it's also, you know, indistinguishable from other people that's we're all we're all one that's right we are man so much to dig in to that answer but i'll let you do that in your memoir <laughs> <laughs> i like that you give your muse a name yeah <laughs> it's uh feels like a mary yeah so the song By the Jasmine, it's quite a song. It's a story about a young man taking a walk based on a true story of um, a white woman calling the police on you while you were hanging out in this place called Franklin's Tunnel, mm -hmm. um, which you actually wrote about on your first album. So um, firstly, what is Franklin's Tunnel and what does that space mean to you? Franklin's Tunnel is this little, uh, it's like a little water passageway underneath 
this intersection in the little town I grew up in called Elk Grove. And back then it was just all prairie land, cows and all that stuff. And it was, it was like the secret spot for me. And I'd go there very frequently and uh, learn how my voice sounded and how my guitar sounded. I didn't have an amplifier or things like that. Um, so the, the acoustics in there, it was cool. It felt like I was hanging out with my sound and mm. I couldn't stay away from it. Um, and yeah, I, I still go there sometimes, obviously. Um, it's what the song by the Jasmine comes from when I have time, you know. It's a very sacred space for me. It taught me a lot. Do you still feel that way even after this incident happened? Yeah, yeah, in a way. I think, you know, that chapter, I can close it and come back to it and, or find, build it somewhere else, you know. Paradise is in the mind, so I feel like I have that space now in my head and I can put it in other things. I think that's the best gift that it gave me. And, that lady sucks though you know uh, she fucking sucks yeah fuck her yeah, fuck her um there's another story going on here in this song so um you are someone who experiences depression and in that story you were experiencing that you were having some depression so you headed to your place your sacred spot to play some music to feel better can you talk about the mental health angle of this story being shaken out of your depression or at least like having the fear of dealing with the cops like run alongside your depression? Well, the song I wouldn't say is like exactly literal to Franklin's Tunnel. Um, it's also like talking about another narrative of, uh, of you know, um, of black people go, doing very normal things in places they live and being interrupted by somebody who feels like they don't belong there that's calling the cops on them. And with depression, there is a sort of apathy, you know, that comes with, with it, obviously. In the song, my idea of the character Dante couldn't, could really care less of what was happening because of, you know, maybe the things going on in his head that were... So, uh, you know, not only has to do with him, but things that are self, like, perpetuated um, mm. and reinforced in society that, that that's, uh, black people matter less. And what's the point of, of trying, really? Um, that That's how it can get something you can think sometimes at, at your worst. So, yeah, that's what the character's dealing with. record you work with some great people led by brad cook and you said it was the fanciest studio experience you've ever had <laughs> uh and you'd also just come out of being alone for seven months because of the pandemic and quarantine can you talk about the juxtaposition of being isolated and then with all these people oh yeah i was like a kind of like a pretty dopey for the first couple of days i just couldn't really talk it's like an astronaut, you know, when they go up to space for a long time, come back down, 
there's like muscle atrophy they can't really walk very much <laughs> it was like that I mean uh I didn't know how to talk to people let alone like people I look up to uh and you know for a very long time and I'm kind of just hanging out so it was that and the fact that I'm hanging out with some low-key heroes of mine the fact that I'm recording my first record for oh boy and so much that it just made me kind of dopey for the first couple of days. Uh, it was a lot. It was cool. I was like, you know, a little kid in a in a way. I was just did a lot of listening and and watching for a little while. Hmm. So you were feeling pretty vulnerable going into this recording experience, uh, like putting someone in the captain's chair, putting Brad Cook in the captain's chair. What was the vibe like in the studio, and how did it evolve from like? first day at a new school to like what it actually became. Brad always brings a bunch of those Himalayan salt lamps with him, <laughs> um, which, you know, it's pretty effective. I, 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 I found out, uh, we always had, we always had, um, you know, a, a tray of, of, of uh, shake for some spliff rolling on deck. And, you know, we take... Uh, Can you translate for the lay people uh, at home? Yeah, so sh- so shake is kind of like the the bottom of, of a bag of weeds. Um, it's weed leaves, but in crumb form. And we had them on a little silver platter. And a spliff is uh, like a joint, except with tobacco. You kind of put inside. So it's like mixing decaf... And caffeinated. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we take breaks. We take lunch breaks to just kind of hang out and talk. We'd hang out at night. We, Me and Brad spent a lot of time watching this Korean uh, cooking channel on YouTube. Um, during our breaks, we just go in the house and turn that on and watch watch street Korean street food cooking for hours and it's great that's great can you tell the story of the T-Mobile lady who knew your music oh shit that was yeah that was (laughs) (coughs) that was funny yeah I was just calling uh, to pay my phone bill or something I was giving her my name and she's like okay Trey uh I gave her my last name Bert She's like, oh, do you play music? I was like, yeah. And she's like, that's crazy. My friend was just talking about you. It's, it's you, blah, blah. Uh, that was wild. Yeah, I was not expecting that. She was in like, what? Anchorage, Alaska or something like that Whoa. too. Yeah. You should, you should probably like make your way up to Alaska because I haven't been to Alaska, but from what I hear... Like, the people will come out to shows because not a, a lot of people go to Alaska. <laughs> okay. Money That's gig. my tip for you. Also, my other question about that story is that you posted it on your Instagram. And I'm assuming that you're – so you're on an iPhone taping it. Yeah. But then you had, like, a Nokia <laughs> phone from, like, 2002 uh-huh. in the video. I got a couple of those. I was, that's what I was doing. I was switching my service over to that phone and 
Yeah, yeah, I was getting ready to switch on to my dumb phone. I like to do that. I'm going to actually do that pretty soon. I like to get off of the, the smartphone thing, you know, and just go to my dumb phone for a while. And yeah, it does really good for mental health, not being... That's cool. Yeah, not being, you know, so, tired. So you just like switch from your iPhone to this Nokia phone? Mm-hmm. And then like throw my my iPhone away for a while. I love that idea. I'm gonna copy you. You should. I think everyone should. It's simple. It's a simply life. What's with this keyboard that you have now? What's going on there? Madness. A lot of <laughs> a, lo- a lot of uh, strange sounds are coming from it. Um, I love that thing. Yeah, I, I I just moved to Nashville and I just got my keyboard mailed that I mailed to myself from Sacramento. I haven't got to play it yet, but. That's, I can't, I'm like, wait until I set my house up until I dig into it. What made you want to play the keyboard, and what is it doing to your music? I wanted to play keyboard, you know, my brother plays keyboard. Yeah, Joey. As well, yeah. And you gotta do it, if Joey's doing it, we gotta do it. Absolutely, here I am, you know, nearly, you know, 30, and I'm still copying my brother, that's just how influential he is. I got that keyboard because when Brad and I were watching that Korean street food uh, video on YouTube, I was kind of talking to him about a keyboard, and he texted uh, Justin Vernon and asking what keyboard I should get, and then he texted back saying, you should get the Juno. Um, so I did, and since that... So you got a Bon Iver keyboard. I guess so. Um, it's been doing weird things, though. I, I don't know. I sent, We should ask Eileen. I sent her a couple. And she never got back to me about it. Um, she left you hanging. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, we almost put, put that on the record. Uh, a lot of people really like them that I've been showing. Cool. Um, before we go, will you do the lightning round? Oh, okay. What's that? I'm just going to ask you these fun simple questions about yourself yeah let's do it and you give short answers okay what was the first song you learned on the guitar i wrote it i wrote it i wrote my first song i don't remember it's probably like blink way (laughs) too dogs or cats or something else dogs and And bearded dragons and bearded dragons yeah um what is your coffee order black with honey instead of sugar. Whoa. Interesting. You've got all these life hacks I'm interested <laughs> in. First celebrity crush? Uh, Alicia Keys. Nice. Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Uh, Prime. First album you bought with your own money? Edith Piaf. Ooh, high class. Uh, what was your first concert? Michael Jackson, cover band. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What was the last book you read? Uh, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Star Trek or Star Wars? Oh, that's a hard one. So different. I know. They are. Star. You gotta pick one. Oh, come on. Star Wars. The early stuff, though. Okay. Last one. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Mm, 
some probably the Gold Coast in Australia on the beach. Ooh, good answer. And then you'll change it to Alaska whenever you go up there and just corner the concert market. Correct. Nice. Trey, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure talking to you, a really special interview. Yeah, this is really fun. Thank you. This episode was produced by me, Cindy. I did such a great job. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. It means a lot. Again, you can support Basic Folk by becoming a member or getting your Basic Folk beanie, signing up for our newsletter, or following us on social media at our website, basicfolk.com. Talk to you next time. Bye.